Today on Let the Bible Speak. God created life and He alone has the right to take it. And welcome to the program today. It's good to be with you as we begin a new week, and I'm glad we can begin it by spending a few moments together in the Word of God. Life is a precious thing. It's precious because it comes only from God. Life is a gift of God, and conversely, death is a judgment of God. We read in the creation account of how God first formed the world and then how He, by divine fiat, filled it with life. It's incredible enough when we consider the complexity of even the most basic forms of life to think that God imparted life into so many varieties of being. But there's something especially sacred about human life. As the crowning act of creation, God created humankind in His own image. He made man and woman to not only live and breathe, but to think, reason, make moral choices, and ultimately to live forever with Him. Death entered the scene, however, when man rebelled against God and sinned, and removed from the tree of life, all mankind became subject to physical death, which is the consequence of sin. Ultimately, all physical death is the result of Adam's sin, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Now, both realities, life and death, are by the decree of God and God alone. Man is incapable of creating life, and it is not man's prerogative to take life anyone's life. That is God's domain. I want to talk about that with you for a little while today. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses gave a song to the people of Israel. And in verse 39, we find this statement, Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. Well, within this context, a general truth is expressed. It is God who gives life, and it is God who takes life. And we need to remember that because anyone who seeks to take another's life is actually usurping the judgment that belongs only to God. We're living in perilous times where life not only seems cheap and expendable to some, but some believe they have the right to do only what God has the right to decree. Our subject today is going to be the giver and taker of life, and I'll return with our study after a song from the congregation. Alas, and
The earth has been teeming with life since the creation, and life is still one of the greatest mysteries to mankind. The law of biogenesis states that life comes from life. Though unbelieving scientists posit the theory of abiogenesis, that originally somehow life naturally arose from non-living matter, you need to remember that theory has never been proven and it certainly has not been demonstrated or replicated. The Bible teaches that life on earth came from the eternal self-existent Creator. That's how it began. That Creator is God. Now, living things can reproduce, but man has not and he cannot create life. Only God has that power, and we see that demonstrated all throughout nature and throughout time. You know, even the simplest forms of life are not really simple at all. They're amazingly intricate and complex, and they're a reflection of the omnipotence and the omniscience of Almighty God. Now, God values life. He created life and He values it, but especially human life because He made human beings in His own image. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. So God created mankind to live forever, allowing them to live in the presence of the tree of life. That was God's desire and his aim for mankind. Sin changed that though. And when Adam rebelled against the law of God, the punishment, as God had warned, was death. And death has been a reality in our world ever since. As Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, they left under the curse of death, and death became a reality for them and all who would come after them as a consequence of sin. Now Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death as well since their fellowship with God was severed, and every person who personally sins, which is every accountable person listening to me today and elsewhere, also dies spiritually when we sin, and therefore we need to be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. But today we're concerned about physical death, which was the curse that was brought by Adam's sin to all mankind. That curse says that Adam and his offspring would return to the dust from whence we came. So death is a judgment. Death is an inevitable part of your future and of mine unless Jesus returns before that time comes. But just as the power to give life belongs to God alone, so does that authority to take life away. So does the power to make that judgment. Therefore the law of God says that it is wrong to commit murder. In every dispensation of time, from Eden until now, God has plainly condemned those who take life. Now, though Abel was sentenced to die, just like the rest of us, because of Adam's sin, it still was not his brother Cain's right to take Abel's life away. But Cain usurped that right. You recall when he became jealous of Abel's offering being received by the Lord when his own was rejected, he rose and he killed Abel and he sinned in doing so. The Apostle John much later wrote concerning that in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. So that's what God thinks of the act of murder. The law against murder was part of God's moral code revealed from the beginning of time. It emanates from God's own nature. Now later when the nation of Israel was established, God codified those moral principles in the written law that He gave to Moses. In the sixth commandment, the finger of God carved into the tables of stone given to Israel was, You shall not murder, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. 
And Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 tell us how God feels about murder, saying, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And friend, God's character and his indignation against these things did not change with the changing of the covenants and have not changed with the passing of time. The word abomination means something that God finds detestable. He hates it. And those things don't change with the passing of the ages or dispensations. In fact, the New Testament closes with this stern warning in Revelation 21 and verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who commit murder, that is, those who willfully take it upon themselves to take away a person's life, if they do not repent of that sin, they will not be saved. That's what the Bible says. So God flatly condemns the taking of life, not only because the law of love forbids it, but also because God is the creator of life, and therefore it's His property. And He is the only one who has the prerogative, the right, to take life away. Now, not only do all people abide under the ultimate sentence of physical death, but there are times when God has taken life as a form of personal judgment for some sin. We read in the Old Testament, for example, where God commissioned His servants to sometimes take the lives of others whom God marked for judgment. He would send kings into battle on a mission to carry out His judgment on some wicked and pagan nation that had uh, mistreated the people of God whose sin had reached the full and arose like a stench into the nostrils of God. God would execute judgment through one of His kings or through His people. He would appoint a king in some cases, or in the, as in the case of Samuel and the king of the Amalekites, just to name one example over in 1 Samuel 15, to carry out a death sentence. Now, God has not given His church in this dispensation, the church of the Lord Jesus, He's not given His church any such commission today. We need to remember that Israel was living under a divine national monarchy in that dispensation. And God used them, a theocracy, God used them as a physical nation to accomplish His purposes in the world. He was working through a physical nation. And so that sometimes involved going to war with an enemy king and his army. It sometimes involved the extermination of an entire wicked population because God was judging the sin of that nation. Today, though, the church is not a geopolitical or physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. The only battles that God has appointed us to fight are spiritual battles on spiritual battlefields using spiritual weapons. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in the third verse, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What kind? Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, our battles are theological and ideological, not physical, not carnal. God never never told any member of the New Testament church, including the apostles, to ever take anyone's life because of their sin or for any other reason. He charged them, and us by extension, to step onto the battlefield of ideas 
and spiritual matters, and to only fight with the weapons of faith, not guns, swords, knives, or any other physical weapon. He never called for bloodshed. The only sword that Christ placed into the hands of Christians, get this now, the only sword that Christ ever placed in the hands of Christians is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. No, rather, we are to love men and women, and we are to seek to conquer the kingdoms of this world through winning their subjects over to allegiance to King Jesus. But we don't do that by violence or by physical force. We do that by the entreaty of the gospel and to expose the works of darkness by reproving them with the gospel, the word of truth, the preaching of that word. Interestingly, we read in the New Testament of soldiers and earthly armies who did bear swords hearing the gospel and becoming Christians, but we never read of a Christian becoming an earthly soldier and thus picking up a physical sword. Rather, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We're fighting in a spiritual war for a spiritual kingdom on a spiritual battlefield, we are not fighting physical, carnal battles. And God has not therefore commissioned the church to carry out the sentence or judgment of death upon anybody. That's God's prerogative, and it does not belong to the church. The only people, and I want to I emphasize this now, the only people given the authority in the New Testament to take life are worldly people whom God has placed in positions of civil authority to rule in the affairs of state, to keep peace in society. Paul taught in Romans chapter 13 that this world's rulers, to whom Christians are to be subject as long as their laws do not violate the law of God, those rulers are granted the authority by God to punish lawbreakers. He said in Romans chapter 13 verse 4, For he, that's talking about the worldly man who sits in the governmental seat of power, he is God's minister to you. Who's you? The Christians at Rome for good. The Christians were not the ministers carrying the sword, but rather the civil authorities were. And he said they're God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So friend, that is the only provision that I can read in the New Testament for the taking of life, the government, not the Christian, not the civilian, the government, not vigilante justice, the government, has the power to punish lawbreakers. But notice that in doing so, they are acting by God's express authority, authority that He has not given to anyone else. And that doesn't apply to some despot out here, some dictator, some cruel, merciless dictator. It refers to the worldly authorities who carry out the charge to keep rule and order and who rule for the good. So all of that alone should tell us the value that God places upon life, the sanctity of life which He created. And anyone who thinks they have the right or the authority to take the life of another person is simply usurping the authority that God alone possesses. And God alone has that right because, number one, He is the creator and giver of life. So it belongs to Him. It's not your life or my life. It's life that He gave us and He gave to others. Second of all, His judgment 
is perfect, when he carries out judgment or executes judgment, that judgment is perfect. And number three, that judgment is perfect not only because he is perfect, but because he has infinite knowledge. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows all of the facts involved. And he knows the heart and the motives of every person involved in the case. Yet we've entered another time in history when life is considered by some to be very expendable. Violence seems to be on the rise, and some seem to have very little regard for human life. I'm told that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. It's a sad commentary on our culture today, and it's a window into the human heart to see the bloodshed in our society that is becoming more and more common. It's becoming commonplace to turn on the television and see the carnage of another mass shooting where some wicked or mentally troubled person coldly and calculatingly takes a gun into a school or a business or a church meeting place or a public event and opens fire, killing men, women, and children they don't even know or care who they are. You may disagree with this, but it personally bothers me to see the glorification of violence in some of the video games people are playing today, the arbitrary and gratuitous killing we watch in movies and television shows, the graphic displays of bloodshed put before us every day that desensitizes us to those things. And all of that's playing out in real life in America's major cities. The number of shootings and murders every week have reached a staggering toll in Chicago alone last year. 3,766 people were shot. That's more than 10 people per day. Almost 700 of those were murdered. Friend, all of this is the result of people not respecting the value and sanctity of life and regarding God as the giver of life. And it's not just the violence we see in the streets. It's even the taking of life in what should be the safest, most secure place in the world. And you would think that would be a mother's womb. And I want us to think about this for a few moments today. You know, during all of the wars fought by the United States during her nearly 250-year history, we sustained more than 1.1 million casualties as a nation. Do you know that in the United States since 1973, more than 63 million abortions have taken place in this country? 63 million. And contrary to what some want you to believe, less than 1% of those were babies conceived through circumstances such as rape or incest. Less than 1%. Among the various reasons cited, the arbitrary choice of the mother is the cause of the majority of abortions that take place. You know, many justify this deathly practice by saying that having an abortion is a woman's choice because it's her body and she has the right to do with her body as she sees fit. Well, there are at least two problems with that. One is, it's not just her body. There's also the developing body that's inside of her. A body that very soon has a beating heart, a developing brain, arms, legs, fingers, and toes, a face that you can see in an ultrasound or a sonogram, a being that can react to outside sounds and stimuli. Now, friend, admittedly, I'm a preacher. And being a preacher, my business is to point people to the Word of God, not a medical book not a court ruling, the Word of God. You're watching a program that's called Let the Bible Speak, and so that's what we should be doing. That God recognizes the personhood of a child inside its mother's womb is simply beyond question according to the Scripture. For example, the word brephos in the Greek is used by Luke 
to describe the baby that was yet in Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41. That's speaking of John the Baptist. Now that word is used interchangeably in the Bible for both prenatal and postnatal babies. According to lexicographers, including Thayer, the word refers to an unborn child, an embryo, fetus, a newborn child, an infant, or a babe. That's how the Bible uses that term. I asked today, was it the Christ child in Mary's womb, or just a clump of cells, or a blob of fetal tissue? God said to Jeremiah back in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And in Psalm 139 verses 13 through 16, David so powerfully said, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Friend, God has a book where those things are written. And if we don't think that God will not hold to account the taking of all of the innocent life that goes on in abortion offices across this country and around this world, we have another thought coming. For anybody who is all con at all concerned about what the Bible teaches, it should be beyond question that what is within a mother's womb is a precious life. God gave that life regardless of the circumstances out of whence it arose. As terrible as those circumstances may be, God gave that life. God gives life and breath to all things, said Paul in Acts 17 verse 25. And though many want to play God and try to predict what that life will amount to, and thus whether it should be allowed to live, God alone has that knowledge. We, we do not. And we could cite case after case where circumstances would have dictated that a child would be better off if the mother snuffed out that life before it hardly begins, but yet a child was allowed to live that ended up blessing the world in some way. The second reason it's my body and therefore it's my choice is simply wrong is because it's really not her body. The body you have is not yours and the body that I have is not mine. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? God gave you the body that you have, and it was given to you as an instrument for His will to be done. And we will answer to Him one day for how we use this body, whether for our own sinful purposes or for His service and His glory. He's to have control of our body. He made it. Not only is our body to be used in the way God created it and for the purposes He created it for, life, whether it exists in or outside of that body, is the creation and gift of God and is to be respected and cherished. What is the answer to the culture of death in which we're living? Laws aren't ultimately the answer. We have laws that protect life. We've always had laws that protect life. And there are those who try to enforce those laws in most places. What's missing is a reverence for the God who gives and takes life. What's missing is a sobering realization of what life is and where it comes from and just how precious it is. What's missing is a knowledge of God and His Word and how serious of a matter it is to usurp the place of God and think it is our right to take life as we see fit. It is not. And ultimately what this world needs today is the Lord Jesus and the love and concern for life that He taught and that He showed 
by giving up his own life that we might know an abundant life here and forever. Life is not some cosmic accident. It is a purposeful creation of God. Life has meaning. Your life has meaning. My life has meaning. The lives of little children have meaning, and even the unborn. And we dare not usurp God's throne and take it upon ourselves to issue decrees that belong only to God. He is the giver and taker of life. If you'd like to have a free printed copy of our lesson today, we'd be glad to send it to you. Ask for the lesson, The Giver and Taker of Life, and that transcript will be on its way as soon as we can process your order and get it to you. Again, it's free of any cost whatsoever. You can find other sermons, videos, transcripts at our website, ltbstv.org. And if you've not subscribed to our podcast, we hope you'll do that today. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, just search for Let the Bible Speak TV with Kevin Presley. And uh, subscribe and listen to us wherever you might happen to be. Thank you for joining us for the broadcast today. And I hope you'll make your plans to join me back here next time and encourage someone else to do the same. Until we meet again, I pray that the Lord will bless you. Have a great week. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.